welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 62, Medieval Conclusions. Last time, a look at the way theatre developed into something like a commercial model finished my review of medieval theatre. Well, almost finished. As we found out before, there's no hard and fast ending to a period of theatrical activity, and you may have noticed that as we got into the later medieval period, some of the references and examples I quoted strayed into the Tudor and Elizabethan periods in England. The end of the historical medieval period is usually taken to be the year 1500, but that's little more than a round number convenience. The coronation of Henry VIII in 1509 could also be used, but that's a rather English-centric view and the French might consider the end of the Hundred Years' War in 1453 as a better marker. And when we're talking about artistic trends and thought, then, of course, the lines dividing periods are even more uncertain, lacking some of the finality that political or military events can have. But before we get to the ending, I wanted to take a look back over what we've covered in the last 14 episodes. I started the story of medieval theatre by talking about the influence of Christianity and the Church towards the end of the Roman period. And if there's one big theme throughout the medieval period, it's just that, the influence of the Church. For centuries after the end of the Roman theatre, the dramatic art was reduced to travelling entertainers performing for the amusement of others, or providing nothing more than comic sketches, songs and dance, and all because of prohibitions set out by the Church. We've no records of exactly what they did, but eventually the church recognised that mimetic art could be turned to the worship of God, and the trope was allowed in the context of the Latin Mass. It's no surprise that this was tightly controlled. The church was in control of many aspects of daily life, and worked in partnership with medieval kings and princes in the governance of Europe. Kings were absolute rulers, but anointed by God through the church and therefore dependent on it. At the top, this was a partnership, albeit one that was fractious at times. As far as the attitude to theatre went, perhaps there was a folk memory of how lascivious and crude and excessive the late Roman theatre had been, and that kept the church wary of it. Actors were virtually outcasts from society, a huge fall from grace since they were idolised in the Roman theatre. But people still needed entertainment, and the craft, in a reduced form, survived. The Catholic Mass, with its costumed priests and elements of call and response in the services, and the layout of its churches, lent itself to the theatrical, even if the priests wouldn't have seen it as such. The Mass, spoken and sung in Latin, was incomprehensible for most, and the church already used pictorial messaging in statues, frescoes, paintings, stained-glass windows and other church decorations to assist the illiterate in understanding. To increase the involvement of the laity in the call and response and to allow the priests to act out the historical elements of the Easter story may not seem like a big step to us, but it was an absolutely seminal step in the development of theatre that was a long time coming and developed only very slowly and in a very conservative society. This was the trope, and more specifically, the quim quiritis, the enactment of the discovery of the empty tomb by the three Marys after the resurrection. This was stylized call and response by priests, but priests playing a part of another person to a script. In the 8th and 9th centuries, it was a small start, but a start nevertheless. From records of synods, church councils, as early as 960, we can see the clergy working out how to deal with the desire to expand and use theatre in the church. They inherently disliked the idea of imitation, but found it acceptable if it remained in a stylized form and in the control of the clergy. 
Across Europe, other tropes were introduced to feast day masses at Christmas time and perhaps inevitably expanded to include response from the congregation. Priests started to develop something that we might call artistic technique and become concerned about the performance rather than just strictly religious celebration. Instructions for the trope had to be written down and we get the first medieval play scripts, the liturgical rubric. And there are other subtle changes, like these details being referred to as representations rather than as part of the officium of the service. The trope was becoming a distinct element of the Mass and recognised as something different from incantation and prayer. The celebration of the religious feast day was a serious business in medieval Europe. It was the only time that there was some relief from the daily chores. In England, at its height, there were about 60 feast days that were officially sanctioned and celebrated with holidays, and where people have a day off, they need entertainment. Even people working within the church needed some relief, so festivals developed activities associated with them, some of which seem very strange to us today. The boy bishops, the feast of fools, the feast of asses, all involved reversal of roles, to the extent where children and minor clergy temporarily took over the running of the cathedral, and they involved elements of the theatrical in their nature. The donning of costumes and assumption of different roles and personalities, even those of animals, led to boisterous behaviour and a release for some of the pent-up frustrations that a very controlled life no doubt led to. In time, these events were curtailed and even prohibited by the more zealous church leaders, but were left with the impression that medieval celebrations could be boisterous, verging on the violent. Medieval citizens could be very duteous and conscientious of the need to lead blameless lives, but could also be cruel to their fellow citizens and like nothing more than to see someone else tricked, fooled or shamed for the general amusement of everyone gathered. This is the period where every town and village had stocks for the public humiliation of offenders. The landlord caught selling bad wine could expect to be fined and have the offending liquid poured over him as he languished in the stocks. The best joke going was to see a fellow citizen caught in a trap as he walked across the village and being forced to pay a fine to effect his release. It's part of the medieval psyche that we find hard to comprehend today, just one of the many things. The trope in the Mass continued to expand and develop, so the feast day ceremonies came to include priests and laymen taking the parts of prophets and saints. Short playlets on the lives of saints were becoming more common and were now sometimes acted out in front of the church, the abbey gates or other civic monument. This allowed for formal procession to also take place, taking the people from the town and the place of performance to the church. The procession that became the pageant was enjoyed for centuries by medieval man. Feast day celebrations included plays about the lives of saints in question or other biblical stories, and it was the introduction of the new Corpus Christi festival in 1264 that gave the religious play a boost. Now there was time and space for the plays to be strung together as an expression of the purpose of God for mankind, showing how from the creation to the resurrection of Jesus and beyond, God's hand steered the actions of men. The next 250 years were the heyday of the cycle play, and the festivals expanded to three days or more in many places. Plays were presented annually, and although still under the control of this church, with many of the scripts being written by clergy and all being subject to censorship, if they stepped away from the orthodoxy, amateur actors started to rediscover the talents needed to perform to large crowds. The marketplace again became the place of theatre, with the pageant wagon being the new form of stage. 
Whole towns became involved in productions as part of their religious obligations. And although the plays retold familiar biblical stories and were serious in their intent, they were nevertheless much enjoyed. The Corpus Christi cycle plays and the similar saints plays are at the heart of medieval theatre. Their form, the retelling of the biblical story, was very simple and changed little through the centuries. The way they collapsed the concept of time so that God's influence and purpose was made clear to all is a feature that makes them stand out in the history of theatre to that point. The Greeks and Romans had already shown how scenery, stage machinery and effects could be used to enhance the spectacle of theatre and medieval man was not to be outdone in that respect. Stage sets became more and more elaborate, costumes more lavish and stage effects ever more ingenious. As the cost of the productions rose, the church needed to find a way to fund the festivals and found a willing partner in the crafts guilds, who were thriving by the middle of the medieval period. The growth of the festivals also meant that the town authorities had to become involved and concern themselves with crowd control and the effect of the festivals on the environment of their town. Of course they, and the church, also had an eye on how they could make money out of the plays. Concerns for funding, expenses and financial control and appropriateness grew along with the experience of the actors, producers and the craftsmen who made the plays possible. In many cities, the plays became a central cultural event and drew crowds from far and wide. The Wakefield Master provides us with evidence of the skill of the dramatist and how realistic characters taken from local life could be entwined with the biblical story. But our sources remain few and the surviving examples from England and a few from the continental cities are a precious and small resource. With changing religious outlook in the later medieval period, plays with a moralistic theme developed. Some morality plays were simple and short, with a clear message, and were favoured by the travelling troops that were beginning to find a precarious niche in a different kind of theatre. But others were lavish and ambitious in production, produced to the same scale as the greatest of the cycle plays. The Castle of Perseverance is a fine surviving example of how personified virtues and vices were pitted against each other in the battle for the soul of mankind. The intriguing setting for the play with its ditch and scaffolds and questions about how the audience viewed and heard the play still keep us occupied to this day. The later Summoning of Everyman is a unique example of a morality play from the period that is still regularly performed today. Although still featuring personified virtues and vices, it manages to humanise characters to such an extent that we can begin to see a new form of theatre in it that is more concerned with the individual and the uniqueness of the individual character. If ever there was a doubt about the creativity and expertise displayed by medieval man, then these plays provide a robust response to that question. Every aspect of the cycle play and the morality play involve a lot of creativity, work and dedication to art, and we can all admire that. But all things pass, and although there is no precise date to attach to it, medieval theatre was on a steady decline once church unity was lost, and one pillar of its foundation was weakened. So now, let me take you to that ending. The start of the Reformation is often tagged to 1517, when the Germanic monk Martin Luther nailed 95 statements of what he saw as true faith to the church door in Wittenberg. His ideas were already being shared with many, and landed on fertile ground where local populations in northern Europe felt distant from the church authority in Rome, and amongst civic leaders who were happy to find an excuse to stand up to the power of the Pope and the church's pull on local wealth and income. 
I'm not going to try to summarise the course of the Reformation here, that's for another podcaster to take on, but suffice to say it was a point in history where theatre was sucked into the politics of the day, as those politics became firmly linked to religious affiliations. As the Reformation swept across Europe in the 1520s and 1530s, theatre was appropriated, and some adapted to the morality play to become Protestant polemic. Plays were produced where the character of the devil was adapted to also represent the Pope or other members of the church hierarchy, and where the idea of an individual's personal relationship with God was promoted, and the need for the intercession of the church with God on man's behalf ridiculed. The interlude also became a means to propagandise the Reformation, and to try persuade those with power to change their religious affiliation, and to show them that there was a way to God and salvation that didn't include affiliation to the Pope or contribution to his coffers. In England, the Reformation was slower to start, as initially Henry VIII sided with the Pope, support that earned him the title Defender of the Faith, an honorific that is still carried by British monarchs to this day. When he fell out with the Pope over his second marriage, the tide was turned, and a political separation of church and state quickly turned into a religious one. Monasteries were dissolved, and many monastic buildings were razed to the ground. Works held in libraries and scriptoriums were destroyed or appropriated by the king depending on their content, and many monks, including the scribes and the teachers, were turned out onto the road. In 1537, Henry issued a decree that reduced the number of feast days and Corpus Christi itself was abolished. Now he did that on the grounds that the large number of feast days that were public holidays were reducing the productivity of the country, but of course it also served to put his stamp on the religious celebrations of the day. The official holiday days were reduced to just four days across Christmas and Easter, St George's Day and the Midsummer Festival of St John the Baptist and St Michael. The decree did not specifically ban plays, but effectively denied them an audience and, indeed, kept the amateur actors in the fields and at their trade, rather than free to perform. About the same time, legislation was also enacted in Parliament specifically to control large gatherings, including around theatrical performances, out of fears that rival factions within the crowd might spark serious rioting. In Paris, all religious plays were banned in 1548, in a pattern that was repeated in various French cities over the next two decades. But across continental Europe, it was not only Protestant zeal that led to the demise of religious drama. Particularly in France, but also in Spain and Italy, there was a pulling back by Catholics from the lavish presentations. Towns, cities and religious sources withdrew funds as they sought to limit the potential flashpoints between the rival factions, and also out of a desire not to be seen to inflame the situation. In some cases, this led to even stricter censorship of plays, in others the complete withdrawal of plays that had been presented for many years, if not decades. It was only in southern Spain and northern Italy that religious plays continued in a significant way. In both cases, there were real threats to border security, from the Muslim south in Spain and the Protestant north in Italy, where reformers in the German states shared a language with the northern Italians. These threats resulted in plays that reinforced the Catholic message, with all extraneous comedy and any possible deviation from Catholic orthodoxy removed. In Italy, religious plays remained popular well into the 17th century and were only replaced when rediscovered classical period plays became supported by the church and local princes, who increasingly chose to fund that style of theatre rather than the ever more outdated religious plays. In this way, a clear divide between secular plays and religious plays was created. 
In Spain and Italy, it took the span of the 16th century and more to make that transition, so that it can be seen as a rather smoother and slower occurrence than in the rest of Europe. And that is a direct response to the political impact of the Reformation. However, this isn't a change that can be easily summarised, even at country level. The twists and turns of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation tended to happen at a very local, regional level, with the exact course steered not only by the flavour of religious beliefs, but by commercial interests, academic thought and other sociological factors. In Protestant areas, a subgenre of the interlude was attempted in the service of the Reformed religion. The moral interlude was a play along the lines of a short morality play, but where the vice or virtue and mankind were replaced by the embodiment of the Reformed Church, and the fight was with the Pope, who was portrayed as the devil or the Antichrist. The form was perhaps too crude to survive longs, and so obviously open to ridicule by the supporters of the opposing view, that riots were a seriously potential problem, and therefore city councils were often reluctant to allow such performances. The lead to fill the space left by the decline of religious drama was taken up by the universities in Europe. Latin, being the language of the church and the law, had always been part of the university curriculum, and they steadily included more and more playtexts and philosophy from antiquity as they were rediscovered in the 13th century onwards. That trend was strongest in Italy thanks to its close linguistic links to Latin, and it was there that Roman period manuscripts were first rediscovered and then copied and exported to other parts of Europe. In the wake of Latin, the importance of ancient Greek was also rediscovered, and a route to the Greek classics slowly opened up along the same academic path. With the Reformation fueling the need for scholars to go back to original Greek and Latin religious texts, a way was opened for the study of original play texts as well. The time was ripe for the presentation of classical theatre through the lens of the late medieval understanding of antiquity, and productions of Roman and Greek plays became popular. Theatre that was either the rump end of medieval religious drama or the newly revived classical canon was always under close scrutiny. Many religious leaders retained their inherent distaste for mimetic art and continued to try to curtail it wherever possible. But by the end of the 16th century, the universal control of the church over the content and presentation of theatre was a thing of the past. That theatre survived this turbulent period probably has more to do with the academic use of Roman and Greek classics than any other single factor. With the universities being able to claim the study of plays under the guise of the study of Latin and Greek languages and as part of rhetoric, they grew the interest in these works amongst students who were to become the priests and lawyers and politicians of the next generation. With the loosening of religious affiliations and new freedoms of belief within limits, these students found a voice for the humanistic trends in the classical canon, and that too weaved its way into the thinking of the post-Reformation generations. To underscore what I said last time about the impact of commercial concerns at this time, without the joint support of the church, the city councils and the guilds, the presentation of large-scale theatrical events be they cycle plays or morality plays, became very difficult, and the reduction in theatrical activity of this nature was largely driven by the financial concerns, but coupled with uncertainties about the benefits of productions. By the early 1540s, the records show that very few religious plays were being performed, and town funding had been focused on Christmas and Easter and St George's Day celebrations only. 
Some records mention specifically that funds formerly used for the Corpus Christi place were being diverted to city works, town wall repairs and the such like, so it's possible that city financiers were happily complicit in the swift demise of something that could be seen as an expensive extravagance. There were sporadic revivals in particular cities through the later 1600s, and in the north of England the traditions were maintained more frequently than in the south. But a rebellion there in 1569 and a clampdown by Elizabeth I in the following year marks the all but final end of the medieval theatre of religious worship. After that date, there are only a few serious attempts to revive the tradition, which are quite short-lived. But there was one final flick of the tail, as a taste for anti-Catholic polemic plays developed. Across Europe, but particularly in the political hotspots of Basel, London and Bern, the Protestant church allowed theatre that supported their view. This was never on the scale of the cycle plays, but more like that of the interlude plays. The trend started in the German states and was passed across Europe by the ever-increasing number of printing presses. These plays mocked the Pope, the clergy, monks and even nuns as greedy and wanton individuals out for their own gain and in the service of the devil. Nicholas Manuel produced some particularly vitriolic pieces in the 1520s, and such works were picked up by the English Chancellor Thomas Cromwell. He had replaced Henry VIII's first Chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, whose attitude to the theatre had been to ban anything he disagreed with but otherwise pretty much leave it to its own devices. But Cromwell saw its potential as polemic and commissioned pieces from John Bale, a priest who had become a Protestant, for the company of players that he maintained. One of the German plays that made it across to England was performed at Cambridge University. Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of the University, reacted to the unrest the play caused by declaring it too pestiferous to be tolerated. This was in 1545, after which more legal restrictions were put on plays, actors and the printing of plays in England, and the demise of medieval theatre accelerated towards its final end under Elizabeth I. Theatre is generally a reflection of its time, so perhaps it's no surprise that the strictly religious play came to an end at a time of religious and therefore political turmoil. But the demise is not what we should remember most about medieval theatre. Let's be impressed by its longevity. Let's marvel at the commitment of the amateurs and professionals who believed in its power and ability to communicate a central message to the masses. Let's think of its sophistication and the way that reflects on medieval man. It's easy for us to consider the people of the past as simple and even stupid, but medieval theatre is a fantastic example of why we should be very wary of doing that. The people of the past may have held many ideas that we know for sure were misplaced, and many that we can believe but still can't prove were wrong. But within their belief system, there was logic and sophistication. They lacked technology and understanding that has since been gained by successive generations, but they knew how to perform tasks that allowed them to live, and in some cases thrive, in their own time, that are now long forgotten. The theatre is just one example of this. There they were able to impress a crowd with a flying angel, a saviour walking on the water, or an idea of what the mouth of hell or the gates of heaven might look like. They thought through and built machinery that allowed the rain to fall and a decapitated head to spew blood. They worked out how to best manage the sightline and make a play audible in the open air, and they put words in the mouths of characters that spoke to kings and paupers alike. They were able to take abstract concepts and represent them on stage. They conceived and were able to utilise a concept of the truncating of time and place to create drama that was both entertainment and a form of worship. 
That worship was for most absolutely genuine, and in that respect, at least, the medieval cycle plays, the saints' plays and the morality plays stand alongside Greek and Roman theatre. But medieval men and women also like to have fun and enjoy themselves. It's easy to get caught up in the hardships and horrors of medieval life, and imagine nothing but root-eating filthy peasants and cruel kings and princes brooding in drafty halls. But medieval life was alive with entertainment and enjoyment. Jokes, singing, poetry, music, sport, jousting, dancing and, of course, theatre. We may not consider all these forms of entertainment to our taste now, in the same way we don't think the habitual beating of children or animals is a good thing, or that illness can be caused by the movement of the stars, or the position of the planets at your birth, or can be cured by bloodletting and prayer. But they knew what they liked, and theatre, for all its religious overtones, was one of the few mass entertainments available to them. Perhaps it's that idea, of the mass appeal of theatre at the time, that we should remember most. The crowd on Corpus Christi or at a performance of Everyman might be the biggest crowd some people would ever be part of, and they were enthralled by a theatrical form that spoke to their worldview and their belief system. But not only were they watching a performance, but for many of them they were part of the experience and contributed to it as a community experience, one of the things that bound them together in a way that is much less known to us today. There's no great gap between the end of the medieval theatre and the beginning of the next phase, as we saw at the end of the Roman theatre, and many of the techniques and experiences of the medieval theatre were carried into this new phase. Medieval theatre was the firm base that the next phase grew out of, particularly in respect of stage techniques, stage effects and stage machinery. But a new enthusiasm for theatre was needed to spur it to new developments and a new means of expression. Theatre was well on the way to being professional rather than amateur and metropolitan rather than rural. Its survival was due in a large part to academic interest that replaced the clerical support that it had received for centuries. The men who moved in these circles, the academics, the intellectuals and some of the educated gentry, realised that there was a gap to be filled where the religious play had once stood and that there was no lack of desire for entertainment amongst the people who could still provide a large and enthusiastic audience. I'm off now for a bit of a break to recharge the batteries and prepare for Season 4. There will be a few bonus episodes coming out in the feed over the next few weeks, so make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast to pick these up as soon as they arrive. They cover some different aspects of theatre history, and I hope you'll enjoy them. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the podcast, please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content for a small monthly fee. Also, you could join the Facebook group and follow the podcast on Twitter. Any contributions go towards offsetting the cost of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. And don't forget to have a look at the website for the podcast, that's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com, where there are pictures related to some episodes and other theatre-related stuff. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email on thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.